So today's scripture reading will be from Luke, chapter 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear and in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned by the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Luke 12. Thank you, Joseph, for reading the scripture for us. As you can probably guess, we're continuing on in our series through the book of Luke today. And my name is Jennifer. You might be wondering why I'm up here when Brian is, in fact, here today. And you will have to ask him why it is that he wasn't able to prepare a sermon this week. He has a good reason. Um, So we're in the Gospel of Luke. And in fact, we are halfway through. You might feel, some of you who are regulars here might feel like we've been in the book of Luke forever. It has not been forever, but it has been more than a couple of months. And um, we're actually halfway now. So we can feel that sense of progress and accomplishment that we are, in fact, getting somewhere. And before I get into the scripture, I want to talk about television. How many of you have ever watched the show Grey's Anatomy? Yeah, I see a few hands. Yeah, most of you have heard of it, I'm sure. And I know um, I'm potentially opening myself up to some mockery here because it's, you know, essentially a soap opera. But I recently started watching it on Netflix, and this week I watched an episode that gave me the perfect illustration for my sermon today. And so if you've never seen this show, it's about a group of surgeons in a Seattle hospital, and it's about all the relationships they have and about the patients that they treat. And so in this particular episode, they're expecting a patient who is morbidly obese, over 600 pounds. And so one of the attending physicians, Dr. Bailey, is tasked with giving um, sensitivity training to the younger doctors. And they're warned about things like not making jokes and not asking inappropriate questions and to watch their facial reactions so that they don't appear to be disgusted or surprised by anything. And basically just telling them not to be rude in any way. And as the episode goes on, it turns out that they're really not very good at putting that advice into practice. And so while this patient is being admitted and treated, Dr. Karev, a different doctor, is taking bets on how much they think this guy weighs. And they've got a pool going. And at the end of the episode, you find out who wins. 
And guess who it is? It's Dr. Bailey, the one who gave the sensitivity training. <laughs> and this is just, to me, the perfect example of how hypocrisy can actually undermine everything that we say and everything that we might want to teach. And so the doctors on Grey's Anatomy, they needed more than just rules that would help them appear to be sensitive. They actually needed to passionate towards this patient. They needed to actually care about his feelings. And that can be difficult. That takes some vulnerability on our part because the more sensitive and the more loving we are towards others, the more potential that there is for us to be hurt by them or to hurt for them on their behalf. And so it's easier sometimes to protect ourselves by staying insensitive to people. And unfortunately, I think that in the broader Christian culture, I guess, of North America today, do you know who's most likely to hurt our feelings? It's other church people. It's other religious people. I hesitate to say other Christians because I'm holding out hope that if we're truly Christians, then we would show grace to each other and not be so critical towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. But often we are actually far too judgmental of each other, and especially on the internet. You guys, I cannot get over how once we start typing, we seem to completely forget Jesus' words that the one who's without sin should cast the first stone or that you know, we should take the log out of our own theology before we start uh, looking at the speck in someone else's. And it's been appalling to see how Christians disagree with each other, but not in a nice way, in attacking and slandering each other online. And so it seems to me a lot of us need to brush up on our own sensitivity training. Last week, Brian preached on the theme of hypocrisy. He was at the end of Luke 11, and it was a great sermon. I advise you to go and watch it online if you missed it. Uh, he walked us through the six woes that Jesus preached, or um, I guess pronounces, on the Pharisees and the experts of the law, the Jewish religious teachers of his day. And out of that sermon came six ways to spot a hypocrite. Some of you might have spotted a few in your own self and have been working on that this week. And today we're going to consider hypocrisy from another angle because Jesus addresses it again. He teaches his disciples in this speech four ways to respond to a hypocrite who is judging them. Now if you're reading it today in the NIV version, if you've got your Bible, there are some in the pews if you need one. Um, I just have to say that the title in the NIV, Warnings and Encouragements, this is just a terrible title for this section, okay? I don't know who wrote that title in. It's not actually part of the scripture, you know, these titles, the headings. But, you know, this is not a bunch of unrelated sayings. This is a deliberate, focused description of how the disciples should respond to religious hypocrites like the Pharisees. Jesus knows that after they've killed him, the disciples are going to have to deal with taking the brunt of the religious leader's anger and abuse and persecution. And it is so important to him that he be able to explain how they should react that he actually ignores this huge crowd that is waiting for him. I don't know if you noticed that in the first verse that Joseph read for us. We're told there's a crowd gathering of many thousands of people that are so desperate to see him, they're actually trampling one another. 
You know, if they had ambulances with sirens in those days, they would have been coming through to pick up the people that have been stomped on as everyone is trying to get to Jesus. And Jesus is ignoring them because at this moment, his disciples need him more. They need him because after his last speech, they are either terrified or they're feeling pretty smug and neither of those reactions is okay with him. Jesus has just torn a strip off the Pharisees for their hypocrisy in the Pharisees' own house, by the way, at dinner, by the way. We're never safe <laughs> from Jesus' word to us. And so now the disciples, some of them at least, I'm sure, are afraid they're going to be next because they can see themselves reflected in his criticisms. And so I can imagine them sitting silent at the dinner table with their eyes wide and they're ready to bolt at any second. They need a word from Jesus of encouragement. And others of the disciples perhaps are feeling pretty satisfied with themselves and that the Pharisees finally got what was coming to them and they're pleased to be on Jesus' team, the winning team. And so they're sitting there with their arms crossed and they're nodding along with everything that Jesus is saying. And so their judgmental attitude needs a warning. And in Jesus' own brilliant way, in the same speech, he addresses both of them. If you're afraid of being judged, then these words are for you. And if you're the one doing the judging, then these words are also for you. And they're for us. Because as Jesus well knew, religious hypocrisy was not going anywhere. 2,020 years later, here we are, and it's something that all of us have encountered and all of us have been tempted by. Whenever we have majored in the minors, as Brian said last week, whenever we've made a big deal out of little details and missed the whole point, or when we've held on to legalistic rules instead of grace, or when we've been worried more about other people's opinions than about God's opinion, then we've been hypocrites. And most of us have also had this frustrating experience of having someone who's missed the log in their own eye criticize us for something we're doing or not doing. And so religious hypocrites are found in the church, usually. And that makes Jesus' teaching on this subject all the more sobering for us today, because this is not directed at anyone else. This is for you and me. And Jesus makes four main points in this speech about how to respond to a hypocrite. And I call this speech, only God can judge you, and he will, but don't be afraid. And I think that's a much better title than warnings and encouragements. So in the first three verses, Jesus starts off by saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. So first of all, Jesus is saying, When you're judged by a religious hypocrite, don't be like them. You'll want to be, but don't be. You have to be on your guard. Because the first thing that most of us want to do when we're criticized by a hypocrite is we turn the tables and we think, well, how can you criticize me for that because you're doing X, Y, and Z? And so then we become hypocrites too because we say that our purpose is to share the love of God with everyone and then we react with anger and judgment the minute someone isn't loving to us. 
Hypocrisy is very contagious that way. It's like yeast, Jesus said, that will spread and grow in a batch of dough. And it can infect whole churches, it can infect whole denominations. We have to be on our guard against it, actively on our guard. And hypocrisy is absolutely pointless, Jesus says, because everything that you say, think, and do is known by God. There's no such thing as privacy, really. Everything hidden, he says, everything concealed, everything that we keep quiet is going to be discovered in the end. We might fool each other for a little while. We might even get away with it for a whole lifetime. But there's no fooling God. And in the final judgment, everyone will see you for what you are. So when you meet a hypocrite, Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't react or attack. Just continue to be humble, honest, authentic. Be a person of integrity whose behavior matches their beliefs. Be the same person in private, in your own house, as you are in public. Practice what you preach. And apologize when you mess up, because there's no use pretending to be better than you are. You can never win at that game. You'll always lose, because God knows exactly who you truly are. So then he goes on, verses 4 to 7. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. So Jesus' point here, the second point of his speech, is that we should live for God's approval only. So some religious hypocrite criticizes us. So what? What's the worst they can do, Jesus says? They insult us, they can ruin our reputation, they can even arrest us or throw us in jail, even take our own life. He, they can even execute us, but if we're doing what God wants us to do, what does it really matter in the end? In Romans 8.31, the Apostle Paul wrote, If God is for us, who can be against us? And he had a whole lot of people against him, didn't he? If you read through Acts, he was getting stoned and shipwrecked and tossed out of cities all over the place. But he didn't care. He had a mission. He was living for God's approval to complete the task that God gave him of preaching to the Gentiles. And whether they liked it or not, or whether they liked him or not, and whether the other Christians liked what he was doing or not, none of that mattered, because God was the one who had ultimate authority over him. And he has ultimate authority over each one of us, and our eternal destiny. And now if you're like me, you might wish that Jesus didn't sound quite so threatening here. It sounds very harsh. He says, I sh I'll show you whom you should fear. You want to fear somebody. You should fear God. Because he can throw you into hell. Okay. Thanks, Jesus. I'm encouraged. <laughs> so, but then he immediately, immediately goes on and reminds us of God's softer side. That he knows all of his little sparrows that he created. And that he loves each one of us like a father. And more than a father, a creator who knows every single hair on our heads. Which probably changes by the hour. And he... He knows that number. Most parents wouldn't know that number, I'm sure, but God does. He keeps track of every single detail 
of our lives. He knows us inside and out. He knows how many minutes you slept last night. He knows how many steps you've taken and how many heartbeats you've had today. That makes him sound like a Fitbit. But the Fitbit doesn't care about those things, right? And God actually cares. He doesn't just record them. It matters to him. He is... It says in Psalm 56, 8, in the message, I love this, it says, You've kept track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights, each tear entered in your ledger, each ache written in your book. So if God cares about all those things, then we can assume that we're precious to him, we're important. But then we still have this contradiction, because Jesus says to fear God, and in verse 5, in fact, he says it twice, and then in verse 7 he says, don't be afraid. So which is it? Fear God or don't fear him? And I looked up the Greek word for fear because I was really hoping that they would be two different words that it would say, you know, he's not really saying fear, fear God, right? He means respect and awe and reverence. And then when he says don't be afraid, he means fear, fear. But um, that all fell apart because no, it's the exact same word. So um, it's a conundrum. But then I had an aha moment. Romans 13.3. The difference with the fear is the character of the person who's doing the fearing. Romans 13.3 says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. So I think Jesus is saying here, if you're sinning and you're hiding it, by trying to look good for others, if you're a hypocrite, you should be afraid. Because God is not pleased with you. And so let that fear of judgment prompt you to repent. But if you're following me and you're doing what's right, then there's no need to be afraid. And so the fact that God knows every single thing about us, down to the number of hairs that we have, is it's a reason for fear, in a sense, because he is so holy and we are so sinful. But it's also a source of comfort, because he, we know we're loved. We know we have worth to God. And he would much rather discipline us with a little motivational fear than have to destroy us. This is how Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher and evangelist from the 18th century, got away with his hellfire and brimstone type sermons, because they worked. They scared people into salvation. And I don't think that would work very well at all in our day and age and in our culture. Most people don't believe in hell anyways, and we'd just make them mad. But apparently, Jesus was not afraid to confront people with some scary truths if it would help them to repent and follow him. So he continues on in that vein. Third point, verses 8 to 10, he says, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So Jesus' point here is that we need to remember the stakes are high. This is his third point. So can you imagine how awesome it would be to be in heaven, standing before God, and have Jesus speaking well of you in front of all the angels. The, the glory and the dignity that he wants to give to each one of us is just beyond imagining. And then on the other hand, how awful and terrible and humiliating 
to be disowned in that same situation. I can't imagine the kind of shame and regret and horror that we would experience. So Jesus is saying, choosing to live either for God's approval or for people's, it's something that has eternal consequences. It's a life or death sort of an issue. Our public witness matters to him. It's not just our private faith and our public image and our personal private faith. They're supposed to match. So if you're a Christian and you're content to be a Christian without letting anyone know that you're a Christian or without acting like a Christian, then you're in a very dangerous place. And Jesus has a cause to question your commitment to him. I have to address for a moment this question of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. What is Jesus talking about there? How could Jesus say any sin is unforgivable that will not be forgiven? The way I understand this is that to speak a word against the Son of Man, as he says, is to insult Jesus, to mock him or put him down in some specific way. But to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, this is to reject in a more general sense the Holy Spirit's work in your life trying to draw you to faith. And so if you refuse the Holy Spirit's call to repent, repent of your sins, receive the new spiritual birth that God wants to give you, then you can't be forgiven because you've rejected forgiveness. You've chosen not to ask for forgiveness, not to believe that it's even necessary that you be forgiven. And so that's not a sin you can ever commit unintentionally as a Christian, so don't worry. This is a deliberate rejecting of faith in Christ. It explains it in 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. It says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, all of them, any sin. He'll forgive it and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. That right there, in my opinion, is an example of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, calling God a liar essentially, by claiming that we have no need for forgiveness because we're not sinners. So at that point, we can't be forgiven. But if we change our minds and we decide to repent and we ask God for forgiveness, he will always give it, no matter what it is. And we have examples of this in Scripture. So you remember the story of the Apostle Peter. He offended Jesus deeply when he denied that he even knew him three times in one night. He spoke a word against the Son of Man. But he repented and he was forgiven. And Saul, the Pharisee, he blasphemed the Holy Spirit. He rejected or had rejected faith in Christ so completely that he was having Christians killed and he was tracking them down in other cities. And at that point, there was no way for him to be forgiven because he actually thought he was doing the right thing by persecuting the Christians, by murdering people. He thought that was a good thing to do, that God would approve of that. And he was calling the good work of the Holy Spirit evil. And he was calling his own evil good. And if he had died at that point, he would have been eternally cut off from God. But Christ, in his mercy, appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, when he, where he was going to kill more people. And Christ appeared to him and convinced him that he truly was the Messiah. And when Saul repented of that blasphemy, he was forgiven. And he became the Apostle Paul, one of the most effective and faithful Christians that have ever lived, who wrote most of our New Testament. And so obviously his sin wasn't unforgivable. 
So I think a simpler way of making Jesus' same point might just be to say, you can't be forgiven unless you ask to be. And hypocrisy, this is the key, hypocrisy can blind you to your need to be forgiven. That's why it's so dangerous. The Pharisees didn't think they needed forgiveness. They thought Jesus needed forgiveness. He was the weird one. But Jesus reminds us that consequences for hypocrisy can be a matter of life and death because they blind us to our need for forgiveness. Rather, it blinds us. Hypocrisy blinds us. So, finally, Jesus makes his fourth point in verses 11 to 12, that when faced with religious hypocrites, we should not worry about justifying ourselves. We don't have to have all the answers. He says, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Why would the Holy Spirit teach them at that time what they should say? I think it's because Jesus wants those hypocrites to know him, too. He wants them to repent of their hypocrisy and their judgmental attitudes. And so if they question us and make us defend ourselves, he'll give us the words that will help them understand actually the problem is not with us, it's with them. Peter and John experienced this in Acts chapter 4. They were called up before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, after Jesus had died and gone to heaven. And Peter was filled with the Spirit as he was speaking to them, and the whole council was amazed, and they couldn't decide on any way to punish them. Now, our experiences are probably going to be a lot less dramatic. We don't live in a country where we're called into court for preaching about Jesus, and we thank God for that. So it's much more likely that we're going to suffer from social consequences rather than legal ones. We might lose some respect in our workplace or in our school or in our family. We might lose some relationships if we live authentically as a Christian. Some people might not like us. We might not be invited to things. But really, I think Jesus would say, so what? If we're living for God's approval rather than for people's approval, then we're not going to give in to that pressure to live one way in public and another way in private. We'll just keep on being our honest, authentic selves. So to sum up, Jesus says, when you're dealing with religious hypocrites, don't be like them. Live for God's approval only. Remember the consequences of hypocrisy are really high. And don't worry about justifying yourself. And this is easier said than done, right? We're going to always experience the pressure to pretend to be better than we are, to keep our weaknesses hidden, to talk a good talk and then do what we want when no one's looking. And when we're criticized, we want to lash out. We want to retaliate rather than continuing to love that person. So how are we going to resist this continual temptation to hypocrisy? I think as individuals, each one of us needs to do some soul searching before the Lord and asking him to point out the ways that we may have become hypocritical. Others might not be able to tell when we're faking, and we might not even be able to tell, but God can, and he can reveal those areas to us if we ask him. If you could relate to the disciples who were sitting bug-eyed with Jesus and worried that he was going to chastise them next, then you need to trade in your fear for trust. Trust in a God who loves you so much he knows every hair on your head. It's hypocritical to say that we serve a God of love and then be terrified of him, right? But if you were one of the ones sitting along and feeling pretty smug, 
then you need to trade in your pride for humility. Let's not go around thinking that we're better than anyone else in the world because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So each one of us is responsible to evaluate our own individual attitude. We need to make sure we're putting into practice what we actually say that we believe. And so in a few months' time after Easter, we're going to have the opportunity to do exactly that as a whole church together. We're going to tackle something called the Red Letter Challenge, uh, named after the red letters in the Bible, which usually are used for Jesus' words, written in red. So this is a 40-day commitment to putting into practice the words of Jesus. And there will be sermons and life group curriculum and kids ministry curriculum specifically focused on the words of Jesus, what he said, what he told us to do. And there will be daily challenges for 40 days asking us to do the things he told us to do. It requires action. And it's something we will get to do together as a whole church. But if we really want it to have an impact, then each one of us will have to commit to doing this challenge for ourselves and for God's approval alone. And there will be more details about that challenge coming up. We're starting it May 3rd. So you have time to get your mind wrapped around this idea. And I think there are also some other things we can do corporately to root out hypocrisy in our midst, or at least to make it more difficult to be a hypocrite here. As a group, we get to choose what we care about and what we reward here at White Rock Baptist Church. And so if all we care about is good behavior and we pressure people to act in a certain way, whether they mean it or not, then we're partially responsible for their hypocrisy. Together, we need to create a culture in our church that cares more about honest answers and honest questions than correct ones. And that cheers on those who take risks for Jesus rather than those who play it safe. And that would rather see people living and worshiping in freedom than just doing what makes other people around them feel comfortable. And that values character more than fitting in. And so if we can prioritize those things together as a church family, honesty and risk and freedom and character, then... I think we'll have a much better chance of resisting hypocrisy because the Pharisees didn't value those things at all. They lived in dishonesty and in fear of what people would think. And they played it safe and they did what was expected of them even when their hearts weren't in it. As we prepare to come to the communion table in a moment, we need to be especially sure that our hearts are in it. This ceremony that we do is not something that's for show. In fact, the Bible teaches that this is the most dangerous place to be a hypocrite at the Lord's table. Listen to what Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 32. I believe we can have it on screen as well. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. <clears throat> 